Coming up on Tech Nation, the impact of narcissists in our lives. They start your relationship wonderfully, and then it becomes more and more damaging, demanding, controlling, whatever. If you knew what would happen, you wouldn't have started. But you didn't know. Dr. Romani Duvasala joins me. Her book is It's Not You, Identifying and Healing from Narcissistic People. Then regular contributor Dr. Alex Pang talks about getting employer buy-in to the four-day work week. It's really a matter of try it, you'll like it. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2010, I was able to speak with Stanford Communications professor Dr. Cliff Nass, the author of The Man Who Lied to His Laptop, What Machines Teach Us About Human Relationships. In studying people and computers, Dr. Nass had come to believe that the human brain can't distinguish between interacting with humans and interacting with technology. Well, it's exactly right, and it was a real surprise to everybody. When we started out, we thought, like everyone else, that computers are tools, and we treat them like tools, etc. And then first, just watching people, and then in over 100 systematic studies, we found, to an incredible degree, people use the same rules and expectations when working with a computer that they do with a person. And they're really nice to their own computer, <laughs> for the most part, unless they're dysfunctional. Okay, <laughs> disclaimer. Well, they're nice to everybody's computer, or to the extent they're nice to other people as well. Basically, they treat people treat computers with the same personality and the same emotions and the same feelings that they treat other people. And it's not just the technology we use. It also extends to cartoon characters. I mean, Homer Simpson isn't real. There is no Miss Piggy. They're real. <laughs> Cliff. Absolutely. In fact, we uh, when we were thinking about what characters to use in Microsoft Office, one of the ones we thought about was Bart Simpson. We thought that would be a perfectly good character. Except but he's when spreading showed... little things around your computer. <laughs> exactly. When we showed it to people, people said, we hate Bart Simpson. I said, well, he's one of the most popular characters. They said, yeah, but you can't trust him. God knows what he'd do. And we <laughs> yeah. said, you know, well, it would be deployed by a company. They wouldn't allow this to happen. They said, we know, but, you know, he's tricky. You never know what's going to happen. So it actually was the least popular out of the hundred characters we tried. And Miss Piggy has to take up a lot of disk space <laughs> yeah. and a lot of cycles just because she needs them. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's probably what they ended up with was Clippy, one of the most hated cartoon characters, even though it just appeared on your computer screen of all Hi. That's right. And, and in fact, the super strong, powerful negative responses to Clippy show how social this is. When you ask people, why do you hate Clippy so much? The answers were, well, he ignores me. He's impolite. He bothers me when he shouldn't, which are all sort of social problems, not technical problems. And so, in fact, when we decided to fix Clippy, we went to social solutions. And what did you do? Well, we looked around for how do the most hated people get liked eventually? And the answer was to find a scapegoat. So what... Ooh. <laughs> 
<laughs> this is good stuff. <laughs> you never know when you're going to be hated. Yeah, okay. Exactly. So what we did was we had um, Clippy, if he would answer a question, Clippy would say, did I get that right or not? And if people would say wrong, he would say, a little word balloon would pop up, and he would say, that gets me really angry. Let's tell Microsoft how bad their help system is. We're on the same side. Exactly. And he would pop up an email, and as you were typing, and it would say to customer support for help, you know, your system needs work. And as the person was typing, Clippy would say, come on, you can be more direct than that. Let them have it. (laughs) And in fact, people left the room. Everyone loved Clippy. We had them saying, we adore Clippy. We wish Clippy were in every piece of software. Unfortunately, because it didn't serve Microsoft very well, they didn't deploy it. Well, they not only didn't deploy it, they actually eliminated Clippy. Right. They even let people shoot him with staples. Oh, no. but... <laughs> In acknowledgement of their relationship with Exactly. Clippy. But it's because Clippy lacks social skills. It wasn't really his performance as a technical expert. But it's a little difficult as a company to say, hey, let me have it. Tell me what's wrong. That's <laughs> right. So we, mean it. <laughs> we've worked on a lot of other strategies as well. In fact, you know, in the design of over 200 technology products and services, we figured out what are the effective social rules? How can we use social rules to make computer much more likable, polite, trustworthy, etc. You've been listening to a 2010 Tech Nation interview with Stanford professor Dr. Cliff Nass, the author of The Man Who Lied to His Laptop, What Machines Teach Us About Human Relationships. Professor Nass passed away in 2013. He would have loved to see us all now in this time when we are suddenly adapting video meetings. His contribution would no doubt have been valuable. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco... I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, we won't talk about narcissistic people. Dr. Romani Durvasala wants to talk about their effect on others and just possibly their effect on you. Then regular contributor Dr. Alex Pang tells us how well the four-day work week really works for employers and why over 90% of organizations who try it adopt it. TechNation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Dr. Romani Durvasala. Dr. Durvasala, welcome to TechNation. Thanks, and you can call me Dr. Romani. That's what people are used to hearing. Do me they? As. Yes. Okay. And Dr. Devasla is sort of like my, I feel like I get to have the two avatars. The academic person <laughs> is Dr. Devasla. That's how I publish in scientific literature. And Dr. Romani is what people are used to hearing. So we have Dr. Romani and Professor. Professor Devasla. Correct. There you Correct. go. Yes. There mm-hmm. you go. It's sort of like I'm Moira Gunn or I'm Dr. G or Professor there you go. G. Professor G. 
Why do you have to Why make have gun to go, shorter? Yeah. I don't know. I, don't... I got it, because I'll tell you, Dr. DeVosso, for those years, I was always Dr. D, um, which was great, but when we got, I got into the media space, you had to give, you know, they, they couldn't even get Romani right. And like, if I give you DeVosso, <laughs> you're going to lose it. So let's just go with Romani. And that's how Romani. we There we have it. Well, I have to say, you win. You win a prize, the Dubious Distinction Award. All these years, I've been interviewing people, and you have the longest list of questions Running to five pages, obviously we're not going to get to them, of anybody ever. <laughs> good. Well, that's good. <laughs> so we're going to get to what we can get to. But it's like, oh, no, I got to write that one down. Oh, no, I got to write that one down. I know. <laughs> so I know. This is a huge, huge topic. Mm-hmm. And um, I was approached about your book months ago, and I said yes immediately because I thought it would really help a lot of people, and I, I believe it will. And I was thinking that there's one thing to talk about the attributes of a hurricane. This is my metaphor. You have a different one mm-hmm, in the book. Mm-hmm. But the real human story is what happens when the hurricane makes landfall. It's the damage done to the humans in their lives. That's what all the news is about. And mm-hmm. then occasionally say, well, it's a category 107 or whatever it is. Yeah. Then they go right back to that. Right. And while there's so much written about narcissists and narcissism, it's the people being subjected to narcissistic behavior who just might not see it. And that's that's where the damage is done. And that's where you focus on. That's right. I mean, I think that we've always been curious about narcissism and what it is and these people i mean again because narcissistic people especially increasingly are so newsworthy and such there are innovators and our leaders and so we've been more interested in that and we do, we have not focused like you said on what happens to people in these relationships which to me has been a real tragedy because I think that the tendency has often been that, well, maybe there's a different way you can think about it. Maybe there's a different way you could approach it. The onus is put on the person being harmed rather than the person doing the harming. It's always been fascinating to me why, how we've done that. And I mean, I have some sociological theories on that, but it's not okay. Well, just like a hurricane, there's a whole lot of people hurt. So for every nar- narcissist, there are a number of people hurt. So mm. it's important. It's important to grasp mm-hmm. the, the numbers mm-hmm. here. And uh, uh, and let's start, even though we, we're talking about what's being damaged, who's being damaged here, rather. Let's talk about this. What is a narcissist? Who? What is narcissism? And you say it's a deep insecurity and fragility mm-hmm. offset by maneuvers like domination, manipulation, and gaslighting, which allows the narcissistic person to stay in control. Mm-hmm. So it's all about protecting themselves? Yeah, it is all about protecting themselves. But they're not aware that they're protecting themselves. I think what's, in fact, I just had a conversation with someone about that this morning is that this isn't intentional. They aren't rubbing their hands together and saying, how can I control this person? How can I dominate this person? It is a it is an unidentified motivation. And in fact, narcissistic people are often unaware of what motivates their behavior. Whereas for the rest of us, we're okay. Not everyone's great at it. The healthier the person, the more clear we are on our motivations, frankly. But narcissistic people have zero insight. So they're not walking around saying, I have to be the most powerful. I have to be the best. They'll literally say, I am the best leader because I'm such a nice person, or I understand people so well, or I understand money so well. They really still bring it back to their expertise or how great they are and how wonderful they are, not I need power to offset my insecurity. So because this thing that's motivating them is so unconscious, you know, they're, they're sort of constantly 
you know, flying or driving without any sense of what, where they're going and what they're driving. They, it's, there's no, there's a lack of care, if you will. Like, it's a carelessness would be the best way to put it. And there's a lack of self-awareness. And so it's, it's not, I mean, I don't even want to give them that much credit. They're not evil geniuses rubbing their hands together saying, how can I take that person out? That's more psychopathy. But when we're talking about narcissism, these are deeply insecure people who if you're in power, then you're not you, that that insecure gurgle. And the way I actually let's build off your hurricane analogy and let's switch to another natural phenomenon, a volcano. I always liken the inside of a narcissistic person to a volcano. They're not even aware it's there. And so there's this lava that's always bubbling up that threatens to sort of erupt. And that is their shame. And that's their insecurity. And that's their sort of almost fear of being found out to be found out as just being ordinary. And on top of that volcano is a cap, like a manhole cover. And that cap is the grandiosity, the arrogance, the entitlement, the sense that they're special, the selfishness, the self-centeredness. All of that is the cap. Because then they get to walk around the world being important. And that keeps, like their success, all of that, that keeps that insecurity at bay. Now, if something in their life happens... They don't get the promotion. Their relationship doesn't work out. Someone publicly criticizes them. It nudges the manhole cover off the volcano and some of the lava comes spewing out and it burns the rest of us. That's how that works. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do it exactly in the order of your book because I think mm -hmm. it might be helpful at this point to talk about something later in the book. And, you know, by the attributes, you shall know them of your own experience. And this is under things you do to manage a relationship with a narcissist. So mm -hmm. you, this could be any relationship in your life. You might be appeasing them, reassuring, apologizing, self-monitoring your behavior and self-denial. Mm -hmm. So here are the elements. Let's go there. Mm -hmm. So we keep these relationships going by managing them, right? And it happens so subtly because many times the people who get pulled into these relationships are very em empathic, nice people. When I say pulled in, I mean, I should say more get stuck in these relationships. So they will reassure and soothe someone. No, 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 it's all going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. And then we become, oh, if I say that, then they get angry. And if I do that, they get upset. And if I do it that way, they get upset. So we start censoring our own behavior. We start clipping away these things we do that we do more than, there's no equity in these relationships, right? They don't want to empty the dishwasher. Oh, the fight's not worth it. They don't want to do this. The fight's not worth it. They don't like going to my sister house the fight's not worth it so either you give you either do those things you always empty the dishwasher you always wash the dishes whatever it is or you also give things up either you don't have your partner going to the your sister's house for example or in more cases what we see is the person stops going to their sister's house if that makes sense so we start giving up more and more of ourselves and they become a full-time job managing them because when it comes down to it and if you were to ask someone what are you afraid of because if you don't know, if you're not clear on what narcissism is, you'll notice that like they get really angry or they get sullen or they get silent or they get passive aggressive or they get in digs or they bring up stuff from the past or they actually might leave. And for people who have abandonment wounds, that idea that the narcissistic person will say, well, if you expect me to do all this, maybe this isn't the relationship for me. And some people so terrified of abandonment will keep putting up and putting up. But the appeasing doesn't happen overnight. It's an indoctrination process. It's like an acclimatization. You wake up one day and you've adjusted fully to this silencing reality. And then once people are in that deep, they actually don't know how to find their way out. Well, 
you were saying in your book about it's not just domination. These are domination patterns. So you just said, you know, it's like, and they leave, they threaten to leave, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, or they will seek revenge Uh for what you've Uh done. And it's like, so it's more than that. It's Mm -hmm. or isolating you. Mm -hmm. So that's the difficult part because all those things aren't happening. Just some of those things, right. one of those things are happening. And those things are interspersed with good things. The thing is that the narcissistic relationship isn't always terrifying. It isn't always upsetting. There's actually good days. There's things that attracted you to this person, especially if it's in what I call an adult onset relationship, a friend, especially a partner. That's where we see it most, you know, sort of most comprehensively. And that the person will say, okay, well, I remember we both love, we have very, we, some, we have some similar interests, or I like having sex with them, or I find them attractive, or they're very smart. Very smart's a big one with narcissists. <laughs> they're so smart. They're so smart. They're so smart. Like smartness isn't a virtue. It's, to me, it's like a parlor trick or it's a skill, but it's not a virtue to be smart, right? I mean, it's, it's really, it's funny how we've made that happen. And I think that that tactic of thinking smart is good has really benefited narcissistic people a lot. And so, those days, those good days, whether it is you, the day they get their promotion, they're like, let's go on a three-day getaway and spontaneously plan it because they're so pumped about their promotion. And you're like, what was I thinking? I'm being ridiculous. This is actually a good relationship. And then you come back and it all starts again. But those good moments create the stuff we use to justify the relationship because most of us don't love to change up the status quo, especially if it's been a long-term relationship that we've become, not want to say reliant on, but we're accustomed to, that we've invested psychological resources in, that at some levels has been comfortable or we've built a future or our finances are intermingled or we have a home together, we have kids together, all the stuff that provides the glue of a relationship. That's a lot to to walk away from. So we're going to try to fig- make sure we see this in every possible way. Most people aren't wired for cut and run. Most people are really wired to stick it out. That's just how we do things. Again, a lot of it is a sunk cost fallacy thing. A lot of it is just sort of, I put all of this in. And so I got to give it a chance. A lot of it's empathy. Like I, I can't, and the justification people get into is, well, come on, it was one argument, I can't leave. And I think to myself, it's not one argument, it's about the 1700th argument, but sure. But we tend to have this sort of eraser in our mind that leads us to forget the previous 1699 fights we had with this person. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Ramani Dervasula. Therefore, Dr. Romani, <laughs> she's a professor emerita of psychology at California State University, Los Angeles, and founder and CEO of Luna Education, Training and Consulting. She's the host of the podcast, Navigating Narcissism with Dr. Romani. Her book is It's Not You, Identifying and Healing from Narcissistic People. You've spent more time in your book or pages or words, whatever you want to say, detailing elements of how the narcissist might behave or characteristics, because as we were saying before, there's a lot of nuance to this. So some of these I want to ask you about because you might not recognize it if you just have like one word. For instance, when people say they're incredibly charming, 
Well, they say, oh, not charming, not a prince charming, like in a romantic fantasy. Mm -hmm. There's many ways to be Mm -hmm. charming. Mm -hmm. Let's go there. So as you said, we think of charming, we often think of the prince charming, and usually we think of charming as somebody who is, there's an ease in conversation. They notice little things. They are great at having, you know, they, they listen really well. They have great manners. They might even have like a little humble quirk. You know, like they'll they'll say, I don't know, something like, oh, I took an extra cupcake. I'm like a little kid. Oh, that's so charming. They they own their little kidness. So it's it's these it's these things. And in some ways, charm is very disarming. It's something that makes us sort of sit up, take notice. If these are people who feel very socially skilled, and so the charming person is able to read the room, and show up in that room at exactly the right temperature in a way, right? So a charming person could come in, maybe a room where actually people are sad and very calmly come into that room and attend to people in that room and say, what can I do to help? And so people say, well, gosh, they're so charming. When everyone was so upset after that problem, they were the one getting pizzas and washing the dishes. But usually we think of it as the, the sort of the interpersonal ease. Now, I think the thing to remember about narcissistic people, though, is the charm we most typically see with them is superficial charm. It's very performative. It's very much sort of a, again, read the room and respond to it. It can They will be self-effacing if they need to be self-effacing. They'll have great manners if they have to have great manners. They will figure out how to read the room and, and respond in kind. But I think that in total, when we look at this global construct of charm, it's usually a tremendous social ease, social skill, elegance, like elegance in their manners and how they comport themselves. I don't necessarily mean how they dress or something, but just sort of how a person conducts themselves. And above all else, charming people strangely put us at ease. I'm reminded of a of a volunteer organization I was working with, and there was someone who was always doing things. It's like, mm-hmm. we could ask her to do just about anything, I thought, but somehow she wasn't in the group that, you know, churned out every day. Okay, mm-hmm. how do we get everything done? And somebody said, hey, let's ask this person. And the head of the of the whole organization was really savvy. She goes, well, we can, but we've got to figure out how she can take a bow. <laughs> it's like, it looked like it was always giving. But there had to be a bow in it. She had to get attention for it. And that, what you just described, actually has a name. It's called communal narcissism. That person who's give, 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 but we have to figure out a way for them to take a bow. So in some ways, that that person who made that statement, we have to figure out a way for them to take the bow, is actually an incredibly savvy thinker about narcissism in a way. And I'm not saying this healthy help person was necessarily narcissistic, but communal narcissism is this pattern whereby you have a person who gets the validation and admiration that they desperately need by this do-gooding stuff, but it's really to get the admiration. It's not because of some sort of higher order ethical commitment to the cause. There might be some of that, but the bigger motivation is the adulation. And if they don't get the adulation, they get angry and sullen and will withdraw and may not even support it anymore. So that person in charge was smart because they were able to get the goodies from that person and they're like just build in the time for the bow and we will be okay and that's the way to in some ways you just got to figure out the workarounds now you know we're skipping over lots of stuff in this interview so mm-hmm. i've got i've got a kind of point and click here we're going to jump over here one of the things that we've been talking about uh, and, and have been talking about in more recent times is gaslighting. Mm-hmm. It's sort of become, oh, we're talking about gaslighting. And it's you have a, a far more expansive definition. And I think people can recognize that this generating doubt mm-hmm. about 
your experiences, mm-hmm. what you remember, all of these things. So gaslighting is manipulation. It's also considered emotional abuse. Gaslighting can only happen, though, if we have some modicum of trust for someone. So in other words, a stranger, it's harder for a stranger to gaslight us. But gaslighting happens most you know, pointedly in very close relationships, such as a family relationship, certainly with a partner. It could even happen in a professional relationship where we presume someone has a level of expertise, like a lawyer or a physician or something like that. What happens then is that the gaslighter will doubt the experience, perception, memory, um, reality of the other person. That never happened. I never said that. You never did that. We never saw that. Um, you're not, you know, you're not recalling that correctly, right? And most of us, there will be a plausibility to that. We are not going. Well, I don't remember everything. Maybe I'm not remembering that right. And that, if we push back, which often we will say, no, 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 that is exactly what happened. They will then push back with, you know, I don't know. You, you seem like you've been out of it lately. Are you on your period? Like, why are you getting so worked up? Why do you have to prove your point? So now what you've been told is not only did this not happen, or at least it didn't happen in the way you think, you're, there's something wrong with you for thinking that. And gaslighting doesn't happen once. It happens repeatedly. At first, there might be pushback. Over time, especially if we want the relationship to last, we may start to relent. There's a difference between gaslighting and lying. People will say, well, is it, or is a difference of opinion. People will say, well, they don't like that and you don't like that. Isn't that gaslighting? No, because you're different. You're saying, if you say I like pepperoni pizza and I say I like cheese pizza, you're not gaslighting me. You said, if you said to me, though, no, there's no way cheese pizza is never going to be good and only crazy people like cheese pizza and no one in the world has ever liked cheese pizza. Now we're getting into a more gaslighted place. But even if somebody says to you, that didn't happen. That's not gaslighting by itself. It's got to be followed up with that. That didn't happen. And you know, I think you have memory problems, or I think you're paranoid. And if you try to show the gaslighter evidence, which we all have evidence now, we have text messages and emails, and they're in our back pocket. And you try to pull it out and say, hey, look, here it is. You said this. Instead of the gaslighter capitulating and saying, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, you're right, I forgot I said that, they will go, they will double down again, and they'll say, oh my gosh, I'm in a relationship with the CIA, I live in a surveillance state, and I have to live with you, what's next, you're going to wear a tinfoil hat, so what's happened now, the conversation has shifted to you defending yourself, saying, I'm not paranoid, and you're now off what that evidentiary base was supposed to to support and now they're painting you out as like whoa 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 you need to calm down like and now you have been portrayed as this spinning whirling insane person and so people who actually are just trying to i mean listen there's nothing worse you can do to a person than take away their perceptions their reality their their sort of recollection of what happened this happens to even abuse survivors who are told that that didn't happen your family member didn't do that to you that's gaslighting and that makes the trauma worse and sometimes gaslighters are intentional they will move something around to mess with someone so for an example might be you're very very aware of your surroundings you always hang up the key in the same place always and one day you go to get the key and the key is gone and you're like, where's the key? And you're like, well, they're like, oh, it's on the hook, right? And you say, no, it's not on the hook. And they'll say, are you sure you didn't put it someplace? And you're saying, I always put it on the hook. And they'll say, well, obviously you didn't put it on the hook this time. Now you feel insane because they'll say, well, I haven't used the car today. And that's true. They haven't used the car today. They may have just moved the key. 
And now you're being made to feel absolutely out of your mind. So sometimes it's these sort of intentional environmental manipulations. And sometimes it's the that never happened. And then it always is a deflection, but ultimately always gives the power to the gaslighter. Another aspect you write about is the whole concept of having you doubt your decisions, your judgment. Mm -hmm. He would never do it in in a group. He would, he would sort of take you apart aside quietly and say, now, you know, I have your best interests Mm -hmm. in mind. And I, I want you to really think about this decision because this has great implications about your judgment. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you gave that example because it can speak to these tactics and strategies people have. I have your best interests at mind, right? In a way, they're almost grooming their target. I'm speaking with Dr. Romani Durvasala. Her book is It's Not You, Identifying and Healing from Narcissistic People. We'll talk more after a break. Both Holtec Nation programs and biotech-only podcasts are available wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, technation.com and biotechnation.com. In the second half of our show, Dr. Alex Pang just might enable you to convince your employer to try the four-day work week. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Dr. Romani Durvasula. Her book is It's Not You Identifying and Healing from Narcissistic People. I actually have to be honest with you. If somebody hits me with, I have your best interest in mind, I know what's coming is not going to be good. I always know that. And I think that it's the knowing, right? So when someone says, I'm like, okay, they're either about to gaslight me, lie to me, or give me really, really bad news, right? So it's a, I understand it's, I think people learn this in some management class somewhere or something like that, but it really more often than not is it's, they don't have your best interest in mind. But now what they've done is they've made that a plausible truth in this situation. That's another way gaslighting can happen is sort of how they set it up. So it is a tactic. Well, let's talk about, the physical effects on you 
what this can do to you over mm-hmm. time once you're mm-hmm. in it. Being in a narcissistic relationship has definite physiological effects. First of all, it's a stressor. So let's just call it that right out. So and it may not even be unique to narcissistic abuse, but it's a chronic stressor to be in. And chronic stress, we know, has effects on every physiological system in our body inflammation, cortisol levels, headaches, muscle aches, gastrointestinal issues, and pick a system. It is affect cardiovascular stress. All of that over time takes a toll. We also know that physical pain and psychological pain are pretty much contiguous to each other in terms of where they're sort of processed in the brain. What that means is if you're experiencing chronic psychological pain, Chronic physical pain is often going to go right along with that. And there are people out there who don't understand narcissism and narcissistic abuse who are living with chronic pain. And that pain is real and it's debilitating. And they're not finding any, any biological cause for it. Autoimmune conditions often are invisible illnesses. What ends up happening is that the person who's experiencing narcissistic abuse and an autoimmune condition gets double gaslighted. This is all in your head. The doctors aren't finding anything. You're seeing these new quacks. It's all psychosomatic. And if the doctors are saying we're not finding anything, now it almost it, it absolutely amplifies what the narcissistic person is saying. I mean, to do the kind of longitudinal research we need is tough. Right now, we're still building out the instrumentation to study what narcissistic abuse looks like. But the fact of the matter is, is that when we look at people who are in long-term harmful relationships, bad marriages, all of that, we have the psychoneuroimmunologic evidence that this isn't good for people. My colleague, Dr. Ingrid Clayton, she's written about complex trauma that's caused by narcissistically abusive relationships, especially those that happen in childhood. And as a result, the narcissistic abuse in childhood in and of itself is a contributor to CPTSD. Well, you just mentioned childhood. Mm-hmm. For a child with a narcissistic parent, it doesn't matter what the parent is. A child has attachment needs that are survival needs. They have to create a secure base, a connected space with a caregiver, an adult caregiver, right? And if that, if that person is narcissistic, it's a lot harder because a parent will co-opt that child into a role reversal. The child is now expected to read the parent's mind, meet the parent's needs, and the child will live in sort of anxious fear that if I don't do this or I don't get this right, this parent will withhold they will withdraw, they'll call me selfish, they'll call me greedy, they'll call me a whole bunch of names. The child then internalizes the message that if I don't serve this person, I'm a bad person. And that then stays with them into adult life where they believe that the all relationships are almost transactional. I have to earn my keep, I have to prove my worth. And so you better believe it sets up a kid. And so if you have a kid who has a narcissistic parent, and then the other parent either is not there or is so beleaguered that they've withdrawn, That can be a really rough setup. Now, on the good news, though, is many kids who have one narcissistic parent may also have another very good parent, loving parent, you know, as available, quite available, despite the conditions of the narcissistic, you know, relationship that they're in. And having one secure parent, one securely attached parent, we have learned is a tremendous buffer or. The real whammy is when both parents are narcissistic, and that's really, really rough for children. If the child is lucky, the family has good paid caregivers, there's grandparents involved, other caregivers who may be compassionate, that can be a hedge against that. But in the absence of that, that's when we can really see some pretty damaging effects. One good parent. One good parent's all it takes. All it takes. Let's say... You're an adult here. You finally figure out that, oh, my goodness, my partner is a narcissist and we have these children we're raising. What has been the effect on those children? 
what can I do? I mean, hmm. it's okay. like, is it already too late? What's happened here? Well, the effects are everything I just said. I mean, it's the role reversal. It's the, the child living to please the parent. It's the child learning to subjugate their needs. And so you've got to have your eyes open to that early. So when you're seeing that your child is running around in circles to earn the parent's love, when you see that the child has, I mean, see, when you see the parent has turned that child into an instrument for that parent getting their own validation, whether it's pushing the child relentlessly on academics or sports or any of that with little regard for the child's emotional world as the other available parent you better step up and take that fight but if you don't and your first awareness of this for example is your kids are already in adolescence you might have some really anxious kids you might have kids who are, who are struggling with a whole variety of things including emotional overregulation, emotional dysregulation a sense of not being enough issues with self-esteem rebellious acting out problem behaviors, anxiety, depression. Um, I mean, the list goes on. There's a lot that can happen. And unfortunately for many parents, there's a tremendous sense of moral injury of, I can't believe I chose to have my kids with this person. And now this person has actually harmed my child. Different kids have different reactions and different kids are in different roles. The kid who's the golden child, the quarterback kid, the ballerina kid, the, the straight A kid, those kids have a different ride. You know, those kids, a might actually benefit from the largesse of the narcissistic parent who might give them time or resource or something like that, but also recognize that they're in a very conditional transactional relationship. And the first time that A turns to a B or the letter from Harvard doesn't come or they're not a starter on the team or they decide to stop playing basketball, then they know that damn well that that relationship is going to shift in a very permanent way. So the golden child is in a very perilous spot. They might have a seat with a great view, but they know they could be unseated at any time. Then you have kids, because all these kids are placed into roles because everyone's sort of existing to serve the narcissistic parent. You have kids who are scapegoated. These kids get the worst of the narcissistic parent for whatever reason. It could be that the kid isn't what they wanted them to be. The kid has needs they don't want to meet. The kid may resemble the other parent and they don't like the other parent. It could be any of those things. And that parent will be very much more psychologically abusive to that scapegoated child. Scapegoated children in adulthood really can struggle. Like I, like I said, to the point in some cases of complex trauma it really depends on how severe the narcissistic abuse is in that family and then the issue becomes sometimes these roles stick with us even when we climb into adulthood now the other risk that a narcissistic parent carries is that a, some subset of kids will be are more likely to become narcissistic themselves usually it's because they're born with a certain temperament that sets them on that path it could also be that they're emulating that parent and listen kids can be bought especially in adolescence <laughs> and if they find that that narcissistic parent is giving them resources which give them more uh, better I don't know put them in better position with their peers they, they a car is bought for them or other experiences are paid for but that kid knows I've got to play the game to keep in this good stead but then they really sort of learn the sort of hollow transactionality of human relationships their entitlement might get reinforced they may have the biological temperament that would make an antagonistic or narcissistic personality more likely and then it's very painful for the non-narcissistic parent to watch their child glide into narcissistic adulthood and then you are an adult of course and then you're you're getting older and now you have an adult narcissist a nightmare child 
It is a nightmare. It has to be. It's a nightmare for people who have adult narcissistic children. And in fact, I'm even guilty of not talking enough about this. It's it's not as big a group, for example, as intimate partners, but it's a group. And this is a group that's suffering because these are people who forget even before they get to much older age. But it, these are kids who are uh, it's almost like having a child who's an addict. They act out. They feel entitled to money. They will. There's a lot of failure to launch. There's a lot of lashing out, blaming the parents for everything everything is dysregulated everything is a demand or a command and the parent is constantly vacillating because they're saying well partly they feel responsible did i create this monster partly they feel like this is my kid and sometimes they'll even say let's say the narcissistic kid isn't doing things like using drugs or getting into trouble with the law they'll say well at least they aren't using drugs and i'm thinking like what they are really abusing you and so and for people they'll say as my kid got older and they got married or they had kids they'd use their grandchildren as a weapon and then as they got much older and it actually gets downright dangerous and some it gets downright dangerous in some cases the narcissistic adult child will get their fingers into the family finance start playing a lot or playing around with trusts and wills and estates they will start bleeding off some of the parents money sometimes getting the parents into risky investments that benefit them asking them to sign a home over to them leaving the parents with almost nothing i have seen this story play out so many times with narcissistic adult children i've seen narcissistic adult children try to sue their parents like it gets bad and, and to the point of elder abuse and so if a person has a narcissistic adult child if i can only give you one piece of advice as you're getting older, make sure you have ironclad wills and trusts. I don't care if you have $100 to leave or $100 million to leave because that narcissistic kid is going to get in there and they're going to make a mess for their siblings or they're going to take money that you may need for long-term care or anything and they'll have no problem leaving you out in the cold. One element you talked about was forgiveness. That forgiveness it's more complicated than just deciding to forgive someone and is that good and healing. This is a far greater concept that we have to understand about forgiveness, what we should do there. Yeah, so I'm not a fan when it comes to narcissistic relationships of forgiveness. In fact, that section of the book is called the, I think it's called the treachery of forgiveness. It might be called the tyranny of forgiveness, but I think it's called the treachery of forgiveness. Is that we are, we are all socialized and raised to believe forgiveness is good. Forgiveness is grace. Forgiveness is transcendence. Forgiveness is divine, right? And forgiveness done right with the right two people is all of those things. It's important. It's an important part of healthy social relationships. But for forgiveness to work, you have to have the person who's on the receiving side of that forgiveness make amends, take responsibility, and above all else, not do the thing again. And when what we see with narcissistic people is they are repeat offenders. For them, forgiveness is permission. They're like, woohoo, get out of jail free card. Guess I could do this again. And they're just going to forgive me. Forgiveness is them viewing you as a sucker that they can play. And we see, there's multiple studies out there that show that when a person forgives someone who keeps betraying their trust, it is harmful for the forgiver. So this idea that you can't heal, heal unless you forgive is an absolute load of nonsense. In fact, some for some people, the only way they will heal is if they don't forgive or at least know that they can give themselves permission to hold off on forgiving until they're well and ready. And for a lot of people, they'll say, I don't know that I'm going to be able to forgive until this person dies, until this person is long gone, until I 
I've built up my life. But one thing that people, people going through narcissistic abuse are repeatedly harmed by being told, well, just forgive. You have to forgive. This is your parent. They've had a tough life too. Just forgive. Marriages are complicated. Just forgive. Well, they only cheated on you four times. Just forgive. You have kids together. No. If it doesn't feel authentic to you and it doesn't feel right to you, don't do it. I'm going to tell you now, I've been harmed by narcissistic people and there's some I've forgiven and there's some I have not. And I have no intention of forgiving them. They harmed my life in some unfixable ways. I can't go back. And as a result, they changed the course of my life and I will be damned if I forgive them. I see, I turned the ship around by myself, but not do, do, and I don't say, well, thank you for harming me because I learned from that. No. And so I am really tired of this bill of goods being sold to survivors. So no, no, no. And you know what some folks have told me? They said, it's interesting. 20 years out, I moved on. I made a new life. I'm very happy. And they'll say, I don't know if I forgive them or not. They're like, I just don't give a damn about them. I don't care if they live. I don't care if they die. I don't think they're doing well. I don't care if they're doing badly. I just don't care. I don't know that indifference and forgiveness are the same thing. I think forgiveness is an active process. You also don't need to reach out to someone and forgive them. You may do it internally. Like I said, there's some, I don't even know if they are alive, but I don't forgive them. And I think that's okay. You might be a person who says, no, forgiveness is important to me. Ethically, philosophically, it's important to me. Like I said, I don't have an agenda. If people want to forgive, that's a very personal choice. And I get that. There's no right answer here. But the problem is when the narcissistic person, let's say the narcissistic person betrays someone's trust in a marriage, has had a long-term affair, has misused family funds that were needed for something and had an affair or one or the other, whatever it may be. And the person says to them, I forgive you. And the narcissist is like, great. And the person doing the forgiving says, and I still want a divorce. And then the narcissist will say, no, 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 no. Forgiveness means we just go back, right? And the person says, no, I forgive you. I'm releasing this and I'm not doing this anymore. And so I think that that's a, uh, people forget. I think for a lot of people, forgiveness represents a reset switch. And it's not that. You can forgive someone and say, and we're done. There's too much water under the bridge. I have been harmed too much. I don't trust you. The narcissistic person will say, if you forgive me, you have to trust me. That's not how it works. For a narcissistic person, forgiveness is a do-over. A start again, clean the slate. That's not how human memory works. We don't get to clean the slate. So you can also forgive someone and say, and I want nothing to do with you anymore. Let's talk about some of the ways you can protect yourself in life just from this. So I think it's a couple of ways. Number one, and above all else, is knowing what it is. So many people have no idea. Many people have said to me, oh, a narcissistic person who's just someone who is vain or likes to look in the mirror or they love themselves. Maybe the mirror part, but not even all narcissistic people love to look in the mirror, right? So it is not about loving yourself. It is really actually a form of self-loathing if you want to look at it that way. So I think that it's knowing what it is and the, and the patterns and the tactics, because then if you know that number two, you know, it's not going to change. So when you have that well in hand, any decisions you're making about this relationship are proceeding from knowing this is not going to change. And this, uh, this person engages in harmful behavior, right? So that's, that's it. That's what you're signing up for. And so then you might say like, Oh, I can't get rid of this relationship, but I may not engage with it in the right, in the same way as before that I would say above all else is key. And that leads us into something called radical acceptance and radical acceptance is the knowing it is never going to change. It's this behavior is not going to get better. The amount of therapeutic work a narcissistic person would have to do to turn the ship around 
99% of Americans do not have access to that kind of mental health services. They've got the eight sessions or HMO will give them. They've got whatever the community clinic will give them. And the fact of the matter is the vast majority of clinicians do not know how to work with narcissistic clients, nor do they know how to work with survivors of narcissistic abuse. So the odds that the narcissistic person in your life is going to go do years and years of vulnerable therapeutic work are pretty damn close to zero. And whatever work they do, it's still not going to be the turnaround you need for this to be okay. Radical acceptance is knowing that this hurts, that this is not going to change, that it doesn't feel okay, that it's going to be. And and once you feel that, there's a lot of grief and that grief has to be worked through. There's a lot of loss and it's about acknowledging those losses. I also say that another way to really gird yourself against this is to understand that never is only one thing true about a relationship. Many things can be simultaneously true. You can have a mother. You might feel a sense of loyalty to your mother. Your mother can be manipulative. Your mother is cruel. Your mother is intrusive. Your mo- you can't stand talking to your mother. You still feel some love for your mother. All those things can be true. And a person can feel confused by it. So they'll feel like, well, if all those things are true, maybe I should stay, should stay in touch with her. Um, you don't have to stay in touch with her the same way. If every time you interact with her, it's harmful, w- to what end? You know, and so there's a lot of like looking into our own motives, our own hopes. The person might finally own up to say, I hope I was hoping she'd turn around someday. Your mom's not going to turn around. It's just not going to happen. And so, again, all of this radical acceptance stuff. But the big piece of this, too, is you got to know you. Narcissistic people steal our sense of identity. They steal our sense of who we are and what we're about. And the challenge with that is that we sort of, we don't know, we don't know for cold. We don't know for hot. We don't know for hungry. We don't know what our goals are. We don't know what matters to us. We've got to acquaint or reacquaint ourselves with ourselves. And when we know those things and we're up against this, we can honor what our body feels like. Every person I've known who's ever been in an adult onset narcissistic relationship has said, you know what? Almost from the jump, there was something about this person that made me uncomfortable. Almost from the jump. Pay attention to that because there's, your body is often a lot more attuned to this stuff than your mind. Your body might be like, mm, oh, no. And your mind's like, oh, come on. They're a good business contact or there's someone you need to know or something like that. Now, you ask the question yourself in your book. Why don't we run away at the first sign of red flags? We don't. We, well, a couple of reasons. When we meet someone new, they are charming. They're charismatic. They're dazzling. The love bombing is so seductive when we meet someone in adult. We feel like we've met our best friend. We feel like this person gets us. Nobody runs away from something that feels good. So then when the red flag starts setting in, I always say it starts slowly. At first, it's 100% good. Then it's 90% good and 10% bad. 80% good, 20% bad. With that gradual indoctrination, As it gets worse and worse, we then make excuses for their behavior. And because of that, we don't run away. In fact, we we keep making justifications to the point we get permanently stuck. Well, Dr. Romani, it's terrific. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. My guest today is Dr. Romani Durvasula. Her book is It's Not You, Identifying and Healing from Narcissistic People. It's published by Penguin Life. I'm Maury Ragun. You're listening to Tech Nation. We've heard about the four-day work week from regular contributor Dr. Alex Pang before. Who doesn't love that idea? But still, it bothered me a bit. What about the organizations who adopt it? How do we know it really works out for them? I thought I'd better ask him. 
directly. Well, Alex, welcome back. Hey, great to see you again. Now, we've been talking about the four-day week, and I want to know, I mean, beside the obvious, the four-day work week, workers have to love it. They get an extra day for the weekend. But do we know, how do we know they're getting all the work done? Um, we know we get, they're getting all the work done because we ask their bosses and because at Four Day Week Global and with our academic partners at Boston College and Cambridge and sort of elsewhere, they also do surveys and sort of measurements to sort of understand the impact that the Four Day Week has on the financial health of organizations and also on their performance. And what we are finding is, first of all, more than 90% of companies that trial a four-day work week decide to make it permanent. So I think that right there is the best indicator that you know even small companies who really have to watch the bottom line find that the numbers balance out. But we also find that not only is it good you know, from a, a financial point of view, but also People talk about there being benefits in terms of companies being friendlier places to work, the work itself and sort of careers there becoming sort of more sustainable, right? Being, you know, very often the companies that are sort of do, that are uh, trialing four day weeks are not easygoing, laid back kinds of establishments, right? They are software companies, Michelin-starred restaurants, emergency rooms of hospitals, right? Places that attract very dedicated, devoted people who want to do a good job and therefore are at high risk of burning out, trying to live up to their high personal and high professional standards. And what we see is you know, that in those kinds of places, people report being able to have better work-life balance, being able to recover better from sort of, you know, sort of stressful weeks, but also organizations reporting higher rates of, of retention, so lower turnover. Um, they're also getting a higher quality of candidate when they have open positions. The four-day week turns out to be a really, really good recruiting tool. And also, places have to be more collaborative. You have to be more thoughtful about how you work, thoughtful about your processes. And so it actually provides a great incentive for organizations to become sort of more sort of resilient, more efficient places to work. And so for all of those reasons, it turns out to be a win for workers and for managers, but also for the organization as a whole. You know, I'm reminded of a a person that I hired when I was back at NASA, and uh, people said, are you sure she's going to be able to do the job? You know, back at the time, you would say such a thing, because she had three children. They were all at different schools, and she had to drop them all off. She had to go to work. She had to pick them up. You could not get Sue off her schedule. She was like, I am sorry, I can't be talking to you. I got work to do. Boy, this gal would push out the work, always on time. And she came in. She couldn't come in earlier. She left when she had to leave. But her focus was amazing. She never once shirked off on anything. Well, I'm afraid the rest of us did. Don't tell NASA that. But <laughs> the rest of us, is there something to that? Is Do, do people become more focused? Absolutely. You know, and I think there are a couple things going on. One of them is that 
lots of places will actually redesign their schedules, redesign their workdays so that everybody has time in their day for deep focused work on their most important problems. And this is good, first off, because you know, research tells us that we are interrupted something like, you know, once every 13 minutes or such. And it takes us generally about 20 minutes to get back on track. So, you know, those of us who go through, you know, a workday and at the end of it wonder, what did I do all day? There's a reason for that, right? It's those constant distractions and the difficulty of getting back into deep work. So creating those deep work times is really great for individuals, but also synchronizing them up and having everybody in office do them is also terrific because it means that nobody is going to interrupt anybody else. And it's sort of like being in a library during finals, right? You've got that sort of atmosphere of heads down, everyone's going to focus and sort of get the work out. So that's one thing that you see in four-day week companies. The other thing, though, is that four-day week companies have a preference or are really attractive to or of, uh, to older professionals and particularly working moms, right? And these are people who very often exit the labor force when they have a child and struggle to get back into it at the same level that they were previously. And economists will tell us that this results in the loss of you know tens of billions of dollars worth of economic value sort of every year. Four day week companies are places on the where you know, instead of motherhood being something that is still a little bit of a source of suspicion and where sort of needing to leave in order to go pick up the kids is maybe a sign that you're not as professional as the person who can stay until eight or just sleep under their desk who has no life. That, you know, <laughs> having what it signals for these companies is a combination of professional skill, but also a kind of time management ability, a respect for other people's time, you know, an ability to get through your to-do list, knock one thing and then the next thing and then the next thing and then get out of there, which is really valuable in companies that value their time the way that four-day week companies do. In fact, what seems to be happening is that, you know, we often talk about a motherhood penalty in the workforce that, you know, or of when, basically when women become mothers, sort of their lifetime earnings go down. And compared to order of dads, four day week in four day week companies, in contrast, there's not a motherhood penalty. There's a motherhood premium, right? Those women have the combination of professional skills and soft skills, and frankly, a kind of ruthlessness that makes them really attractive. <laughs> the tiger employee. <laughs> exactly. So you know, so your NASA colleague with the three, you know, with sort of with the three children, was really a trailblazer and a model that I think sort of more of us are going to recognize in the future as a great model. And I know she listens to Tech Nation, so she'll recognize herself. This will be great. This will be just great. All right. Shout out. Shout out. Hey, Alex, thanks so much. See you next time. All right. Thank you, Moira. Regular contributor Dr. Alex Pang's most recent book is Rest, while you get more work done when you work less. More information is available on his website, strategy.rest. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.
Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.